Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. They may be seen by men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go in your room. When you shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do. For they think that they will be heard by their many words. Therefore do not be like them. For your Father in heaven knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. So we've been at this point here where after Jesus begins to correct bad theology, he moves into this area as far as declaring three disciplines that we have as he points out the standard of righteousness. And so he's giving this standard, and what he says is within those who are righteous, and of course, we looked at the very end of Matthew 5, 48, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. What's the standard God demands? And now he's talking about the three disciplines. As he looks at the three disciplines, we were finding it a little bit shocking last week where the very first of the disciplines that he talks about is giving. And the second discipline he's going to talk about is prayer. And of course, the third is going to be fasting. Now, it's interesting that we can, in a lot of ways, look to aspects of our lives and say, I do this, I do this, I do this. And a lot of it is tangible. It's, it's how we perceive it. There's not a, a factual bottom line, this is what you do. Some people say, oh, I pray a lot. I really pray a lot. And, and so it's like, you know, five minutes a day, I pray just before I go to sleep, pray before my meals, you know, that all has to count for something. But they say they pray a lot. And what's the basis of it? It was interesting that what God does is as far as the areas is the disciplines of righteousness. The first things last week that we, we talked about was giving and there isn't a subjective thing. You either do or you don't. The numbers are there or they're not. And so after he says, are you there with this area? And of course we can, you know, go before the Lord and he's going to deal with our hearts on that. Then he comes to this next area. He comes to this area of prayer. Now, as you know, there are many different types of prayer that is designed or declared through the scriptures. You know, there's this intercessory prayer, there's petitions, there's all kinds of different prayers. But when you look at prayer in its basic tenets, what it really is is this, it's communication. Now, when you're a new believer, what happens is this, prayer usually is just a petition. I'm needing this, and I'm needing this, and I'm needing that. That's what the, and it's usually... That dialogue is only one way. It's more of a monologue. I'm needing this. I'm going to tell you everything that I need. And now it's up to you to take care of this. And that's what happens when you're a new Christian. As you become older, you realize that prayer isn't just a uh, petition. 
The prayer is a communication, and it's not just a monologue, but it really becomes a dialogue, a, a speaking back and forth, back and forth. It, as you're, you're, you're communicating with God, God's going to communicate His heart, His will, His understanding to you. And so this is where we see back when the Lord now teaches us to pray, there in verse 10, where He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's really beginning to understand through the spirit, through the word, how God is going to speak to us. And so keep in mind when it comes to this area of prayer, that prayer is a dialogue. It's a conversation. And if you begin to grasp prayer as that, Sometimes you can have a conversation and someone's going to talk a lot longer than you and then you kind of give an answer and then they'll talk a lot longer. And so it, it's, we're not pointing about how much each one talks. The, the older I get, God does more talking in my prayer time than I do because you're, you're listening, you're, you're worshiping, you're in awe, you're trying to be in tune to the Spirit. But what happens is when it comes to this area of prayer, when it comes to this area of dialoguing, we have a tendency in Scripture to look to the law of first. You know, we've done that as we went through Genesis. And the very first time that prayer is used is actually found in Genesis chapter 20. But although it's found in chapter 20, it's not the first dialogue with God. It's the first time that prayer was used. But that prayer was used because God told the king, he says, you know, Abraham's going to pray for you. This prophet, he's going to pray for you, and, and you're going to be restored. Don't worry about that. And so there was this prayer that was going to go on. In fact, I want to share that passage with you. The, the very first time that prayer is actually mentioned in the Scripture. And we'll back up a little bit further because we're going to deal with the whole area of dialogue. But in Genesis chapter 20, beginning in verse 6 and 7, as Abimelech is there, God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. So, of course, we've talked about that, and this is where that first term prayer is used. And then in verse 17, so Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, his female servants, and they bore children. First time that prayer was there, and I want you to see that even in this aspect, the very first time that prayer is being used, that there is a point of the petition, but there's also this humbling of a heart. And if you're familiar with how prayer begins to be functioned as far as worship, as far as in the scriptures, I want to share two passages with you just briefly. The first is found in Psalm 32 verse 5 and 6. In Psalm 32, verse 5 and 6, it opens up, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then in Psalm 32, verse 6 says, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters there shall, they shall not come near him. So when a man, of course, is overwhelmed, and we see here that what David does is he realizes that within my confession, within my acknowledgement of sin, within all these things, you forgave me 
you now have initiated this, this work and you've forgiven me who should not have been forgiven. And for this cause, because of your initiation, because of your moving, because of your work, because of this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray for you. You've restored me. You've allowed that access. And that's what I do when I pray. I realize you have given me access to you. I'm going to take advantage of that access. It's interesting that remember back when cell phones used to have limits. Like you would, you could only have like 100 calls or 100 texts. And then if you did that, then you had overage fees. And it's funny because... God was the first one to say unlimited talk. He was the very first one way back there. And none of us, we were like, oh, we have overage fees. We don't want to use it. No, he says, just, just come. It's all yours. In Psalm 34, verse 15 through 18, I want to read the passage to you because it declares, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. And this says this, verse 17. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. So we begin to see here, it's this area of brokenness that comes in. That God initiates this whole work, but what he wants in prayer is not this haughty spirit, but what he really wants in prayer is this brokenness of spirit. If you're familiar with that passage in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be looking at this later on, but I want to focus on just this one area here initially as we're looking to this area of dialoguing. In verse 9 of Luke chapter 18, Jesus now spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Verse 10 of Luke 18, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Now I want you to focus on verse 12 for just a second because this should jump out at you. He makes this statement as he's praying now. Remember, one of the disciplines, he's praying. But in verse 12 says, I fast twice a week. I tithe, give tithes of all that I possess. You understand he's doing the three disciplines. And the Lord points out here to this man, He's working these three disciplines, but understand what happens. In verse 14, Jesus tells you, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humble, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This man goes down to his house, and he's not justified. Why? Because he's praying thus with himself. Now, in verse 13, the tax collector comes standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Understand the two hearts. One comes with a contrite heart. One comes with a proud heart. And I think it's important for all of us to realize that we need to come to God in humility. And we'll be looking at that as we look to the, the Lord's Prayer, or the disciples' prayer, however you want to word that, as we get into that teaching of Jesus on how to pray, 
But I want us to share that what happens is that so often in Scripture we see there's a humbleness, there's a brokenness, there's this, this area where in prayer God wants to say, I want to draw you to me. We realize, God, you shouldn't draw me to you, but you do in your grace, in your mercy. So while we're looking at this area of prayer and we're looking at this area of dialogue, we know that the very first use of the word prayer was found in Genesis 20, but that wasn't the first dialogue with God. And now Abraham's first dialogue with God is, of course, found in Genesis 18. We'll be looking at that in just a second, but the very first dialogue... The very first dialogue with God, the very first communication with God, was found in Genesis chapter 3. If you want, turn in your Bibles there, because we're going to camp here for just a little while. In Genesis 3, beginning in verse 8, we you, you know the passage, we went through Genesis, and if you would have thought, I think we can learn nothing more from Genesis, understand that we can only touch on this. So, um, And we'll touch on it again, and as we go through the scriptures, we'll come back and we'll look at them again, and we'll get deeper, we'll you know, take another layer off, and we'll go deeper, and again, and again, and again. So in verse 8, as we're looking to hear the very first dialoguing that we know of, not the very first dialogue that took place, but the very first dialogue that is accounted in the scripture. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. At this point, we begin to see the dialogues. I find it interesting that here, as we look to these conversations between Adam and God, it's understood that these dialogues were continual. That there was this constant dialoguing with God and Adam. Constant dialoguing with God and Adam. Over and over again. And it's almost as, you know, where, where, where James tells us that that continual prayer of that righteous man as he humbles himself before the Lord. It just avails much. So you have this constant habitual meeting between God and Adam. God and Adam. And so what happens is this. When he hears that sound in verse 8 of the Lord walking in the garden, he knows what it is. So it's not like, oh, here's some walking. What's going on? This has happened often. And he hears the walking. He knows it's the Lord. And what happens is this. As we realize that there has to be this constant communication, constant communication. Remember that passage in Daniel 6.10 where um, they had that law, you can't pray. And it says, Daniel, though, as was his custom, you know, from his youth, he just goes and he opens the window and three times a day he prayers. So we see that there's this constant working between God and Adam. And as he hears God walking, he knew what this walking meant. God's coming to talk to me. And initially what we see is this, that God comes and as is normally the case, God initiates this encounter. 
Even when Abraham, and we'll look at chapter 18 in just a little bit, when Abraham goes before the Lord, who initiates the encounter? God goes and meets with Abraham. There's Abraham, and then all these, these three men are there. And then God says, ah, should I hide with Abraham these things that I need to say? God initiates it. And even here what we see is when God initiates this conversation, the very first thing in verse 9, the Lord called Adam and said to him, where are you? That's a really, really good question. If anyone wants to come and visit here, and let's just say that, you know, I got a cell phone and, and a, a call and, and it was like, okay, um, let me give you to Tomas because he can direct you. The very first thing out of his mouth is going to be this. Where are you? Because you're not going to get here unless we realize where you are there. And understand that one of the things that we're going to see as we even get into the prayer that God asks us to realize, wow, you're in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven. I have to realize where he is and I have to realize where I am. And it's a really good question to ask, where am I? As I'm coming here, why am I coming to you? What am I needing? What's going on? And the very first question that God asks is, where are you? And so, of course, what, what he does is he initiates this encounter, and then he asks, you know, Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said to you, who told you? Who told you? So Adam here is now being humbled. Adam here has, you know, this, this area of whether it's fear, shame, Something's going on with him that he normally, if he would have that conversation with God, and now he's not. As he's having this conversation, it's interesting that here, God is not hesitant to have this conversation with Adam. So often when it comes to that area of wanting to humble ourselves and go before the Lord, we always think that here's my petition, is God hesitant? Do I have to convince God to do this? Understand, God already knew what was going on with Adam. It wasn't like, I don't know. He knew what was going on. He still came anyways. He asked Adam, where are you? And then he, Adam says, well, I hid myself. I hid myself. And so God's like, well, why? Why are you hiding yourself? What is going on with you? Who told you that you were naked? And, and of course, God wasn't the one that told him. And so he realizes that, that where this person is, is not where God wants him to be. Adam now has this information. Adam now has this stuff. And he's not where God desired him to be, not where God placed him. And as we're seeing this, it's just a beautiful thing because here God begins to initiate this conversation. The same thing that happens in Genesis chapter 18. I want to turn there. You can hang out here, but let me just read you a couple passages. You jot them down if you're a note taker. But in Genesis 18 verse 2, it opens up this. So he, that is Abraham, lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the door of the tent to meet them. And he bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord. He knows who these are. And so God is the one who initiates this conversation. And now in verse 
um, 17, we see here, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Again, God is initiating this conversation here with Abraham. Jump down to verse 23 through verse 25. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this. Now here, Abraham is asking God, God, I think we need to have this dialogue because I really am am wondering, can you forgive? Can you spare? And as God was the one that initially comes and, and initiates this whole thing, what we're recognizing is this. Abraham will never be more merciful than God. (laughs) Abraham is trying to talk God down and say, could you be this merciful? Could you be this merciful? Could you be this merciful? And what prayer recognizes this, God, your mercy exceeds man's mercy every time. If, If I could ask, could you be this merciful? The reality is, God, yes, you can be that merciful and beyond. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And so here we see that when when God begins to initiate this dialogue with, with Adam, he initiates that dialogue with Abraham. God initiates this dialogue, wants to know what's going on with you, where are you at. And then in, in time, what we're going to see is this. The other question that God asks him after he says, okay, where are you? And he says, okay, well, I was naked. I hit him. He said, who told you? And then the, in verse 13, he says, what is this that you've done? I want to have this conversation with you. I want to begin to dialogue with you. And immediately what happens is this, that God himself, before he even talks to Adam, before he talks to the woman, There's this conversation he has with the serpent and he lets the serpent know in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We've talked about this, how God, even before he begins the dialogue now, finding out what Adam and Eve had done, he already said, don't worry, there's a plan of forgiveness. But although there is this plan of forgiveness, and I've already initiated this forgiveness, there's going to be the seed of the woman. He's going to conquer the the, the serpent here. But although there is this plan, I still need to have this dialogue. We still need to talk. We still have to have this open. And I think it's important for us as Christians to realize that, yes, God, you do initiate these conversations and, and you want to have these conversations, but you're going to hold us accountable. You want honest dialogue. And so this is where we see when it comes to areas of prayer. Back in our text, when we see that aspect in verse 5, when you pray, we already have discussed three things. We've discussed that one, God is at the contrite heart, is that forgiveness that we realize I have forgiveness, I have access, thus I can commune with my God. I can worship Him, I can dialogue with Him. Now, when we realize that we have that contrite heart, 
And within that contrite heart, that God is the one who initiates the dialogue. God is the one who begins to open up what's going on. Why are we going to have this conversation? And not only does God initiate the dialogue, but God, if you allow his spirit, he begins to control the dialogue. It's going to be, Lord, what is your will? What is your kingdom? What do you want done? And so that's what he's saying now in verse 5 when you pray. When you pray is when you're dialoguing. And when you pray, you should have that contrite heart. You should be opening to the leading of the Spirit. And he says, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Well, you know as well as I do that in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 13, all the way through 15, he just, woe are you hypocrites, scribes and Pharisees. Woe are you hypocrites, scribes and Pharisees. He calls them the hypocrites. And we've talked about that before. This is where you have the two masks. You have one face that you want men to see, another face to who you really are. So when you're doing this, just be who you are. Just, just know God's going to say, what have you done? Where are you at? What's going on? Who told you these things? Why do you have that mindset? And God's going to say, come back to my mindset. Come back to my heart. This is what I want to deal with you. And so here you have these people. He says, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street. They had this point where they couldn't wait for someone to see them pray. You had two options that one, when you were in the synagogue, if you were at a, at a status or in a certain place within the synagogue, they would ask you to come up and they would ask you to pray. And it was something that everyone longed for. In our day and age, usually when we ask someone to come up to the pulpit and to share something, they panic, they freeze. They're like, oh, I don't want to go up there. I don't want to share anything. I just want to stay in my seat, let Tim go up there, let someone else go up there. But here... What they love, they love for people to see them in action. And not only would they want to see them in the synagogues, but they would also, if they timed it just right, they wouldn't be at the synagogue in the time of prayer. It just so happened that I timed it so horribly, or in their mind so perfectly, that I'm in this crowded market Oh my goodness, it's time for prayer. And I'm going to just right there in front of everybody show them how righteous I am. And all these people walking by, wow, look at how amazing he is. Look at his righteousness. Look at how he's bowing to be there to commune with God. And it's interesting that here they do it, that they may be seen by men. This is why I want them to see my rights. I want them to see what I'm doing. And he says in verse 5, surely they have their reward. The oohs and the ahs. Oh, wow, that was wonderful. There goes that reward. And so what they're doing is they want to have the second mask that they want people to see. Now in verse 6, he says, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut the door, Pray to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. It's interesting that he says, I want you to go into the room and I want you to shut the door. Now, some people take that literal and you can, I guess, take that literal if you want to. But he's really saying this, I want you to shut off, shut out everything 
and be free from any kind of distractions. I want it just you and me time. That's what he's really wanting. If you have to go into a room and you have to shut a door, well, then go into a room and shut a door. Um, but if you can be alone with God and just make sure that, you know, I've got to make sure that all these other things do not become a distraction. I don't know if you've ever prayed and while you were praying that you realized, oh my goodness, I have to dust the plants or oh my goodness, I have to change the oil or oh my goodness, there's, you know, I've got to take out the garbage. There's always something that, that comes up to say, I need to do this. My thing is that a lot of times when I'm praying, God will put someone on my mind. It's like, oh, I, I, I forgot to call them. I need to call them. And what I've finally wound up doing was this. I actually have a notepad next to me. And when, when that happens, I'll stop for just a second. I'll jot down that person's name and then I'll go right back to praying. Or, you know, something will happen. I'll just make a quick note. And I'll just go right back to praying. And sometimes I've gotten better at it where I don't even care about that right now. I'm just going to just pray, God, you're the important thing here. But know this, the enemy is going to try to bring distractions. And that's another thing about going to your room, closing the door. Don't let distractions come in. And that's what he's trying to say so clearly. He says you need to shut off everything else and be free from any kind of interference. This is the, the key. So when you realize that your prayers, as we're talking about these prayers, they're not heard because of the methods that you do. And we're going to see this here in just a moment when he says, oh, when you do all these words or you do this or when people see you, you're not heard because of your methods. You're, you're, you're heard because of, honestly, your heart and God's heart. And it, we always think it has to do with methods. When I was a um, young pastor, there was a, a time, it was one of the, the coolest things. We were praying over this guy and he was really, really sick. And as we prayed over him during the prayer, God just did this massive work and just healed him. Mm -hmm. And he was literally in perfect health. Um, and he was in awe and we were just worshiping God. And when someone else came up to pray and I'm like, okay, now how did we do that? Was it in Jesus name? Where, where did I accent this? And I'm honestly, I'm in my head trying to figure out what method did I use to have God come? It was just God's sovereignty. There is no method you can use. And so remember that when you're praying, it isn't a method. Um, the man who raised me, my stepfather, um, I got to know him at the end of his life. And come to find out that at one point he actually went forward and confessed Jesus Christ. I would have never known that as a kid. But he didn't make that mention as a grandfather. Just a neat, neat guy. Um, but when he prayed, this is absolutely amazing. He prayed the old King James. He began to pray and it was these and thou. My whole life I've talked to this guy and never said thee. Never said thou had a chance to pray with him, and these and thou started just flowing like it was his first language. <clears throat> I found that interesting, that it's a, it's a method. If you use this, if you say this, and it isn't about the, the, the method, it's about our heart. And this is why I think, if you've ever heard me say, let's bow our hearts. 
It isn't, it isn't about let's, let's get everything prepared, just prepare your heart. This is where the, the, re, the real key is because so often people think that prayer is to inform God and to bring to his mind something that's there. Like Abraham really had to tell God, okay, God, <laughs> could you spare the city? God already knew. He, he has no desire that anyone should perish, that all should come to repentance. And isn't anything you're going to tell God that he doesn't already know? And you're not going to bring it so that, okay, Lord, here, here's, here's your mind. I, I want to tell this to you. I want you to know this. It's about us being humble before God. And the more we find ourselves in a place of humility, we're going to have this area of walking out what we see here. So in verse 6, he says that when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to the Father who is in secret. It's interesting that in verse 5, these people wanted to impress men. Now here's the other kick in the head. In verse 6, we come and we want to impress God. I find it interesting that he says, why do you need to impress men? And why do you need to impress me? It isn't about using methods and using words and using these things to say, oh Lord, I'm really going to impress you with this one. And, and really, like, like we as sinful man can really impress almighty God. We are as but dust. We are chaff. And yet, Keep in mind that he's coming in and says, when, when, you, when you come into your room and you close that door so you're not trying to impress men, make sure you don't do the next step. Make sure you don't try to impress God. Because that's what that Pharisee was doing back in um, Luke 18, verse 11, where the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. In other words, look at who I am. You ready to be impressed? I'm not an extortioner, I'm not an unjust, I'm not an adulterer, even as this tax collector. So he's going in, and he, apparently he wasn't there in the Beatitudes, and the similitudes, when you said, hey, you've heard it said, but I tell you what really is happening. This man is worse than a tax collector. And so as he comes, he's now elevating himself, and elevating himself, and elevating himself. And the key to prayer is this, it's not elevating yourself. It's not elevating those around you. It's really remaining God in your grace. You've met with us. In your grace, you're ministering to us. It's all by your grace. And we're seeing here that this is what he says. When you make sure, verse 5, you don't impress men. And in verse 6, don't try to impress God. Keep humble. Keep open. And he says this, that your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. That there is this reward to prayer. And at that point, this is where we have to jump to the book of James, James chapter 5. And in James chapter 5, you guys know where I'm going. You've already recognized that. But it begins in verse 13 of James 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah, verse 17, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. As we see here with Elijah, and he talks about praying for one another, and in this place of humility, in the place of a contrite heart, but he says in verse 17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I don't know how many times in our thinking that we think that we have to be like Elijah in order to be heard. That we have to be this righteous man in order to be heard. Well, don't make no mistake, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. But you have to understand that we have the very righteousness of God that's been imputed to us by Christ. Not because we've done it ourselves. There's nothing that we've done. It's been everything that he's done. And so as we're coming to this area, it's so important to remember that Elijah, we don't have to be like Elijah. Elijah was like us. And if you realize that he was like us, and then it says here, and he prayed earnestly. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So we see here this beautiful understanding about prayer is you don't have to impress God. You don't have to, oh, i got to make myself like Elijah. No, understand. Elijah was just like us. It isn't about elevating yourself. It's about elevating God. And we're going to see that here in just a moment. So he now begins to add a little bit of correction in verse 7. He says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. <coughs> it's important that we don't just pray for rote, that we're not praying just to say the same words over and over again. There are certain priests and monks up in Tibet and they figured out a great way to get prayers answered. What they do is they actually write their prayers on a cloth and they put that cloth on what's known as a prayer wheel. And they put that prayer wheel there in Tibet, it's windy, and every time that wheel spins around, that prayer is being launched off to their gods. And it's like, oh, oh, look at all those prayers. Like, like that's really going to help. So we think here that we're going to be heard because of the, the many words. And he says, and don't use vain repetitions. We begin to see here that as we look to this, what is called either the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, that some people use it and it's just... A prayer. They use it as a repetition. They use it as a repetition. They use it as a repetition. I think what happens is this, that if you have a true dialogue with God, you can have the same subject matters, but you're going to have a whole different dialogue. How many times when, you know, you, you talk to a friend, you talk about, oh, we did this and we did this, but then it shifts. There's always a new aspect, a new part of what we're doing. 
And so like when you get together, you might talk about fishing, but you're not talking about the same fish at the same time every time. You're talking about this part of fishing. Oh, I learned something more about fishing. So you can have the same subject, but you're broadening out in your dialogues. The same thing when it comes to the marriages. How many times do husbands and wives talk about their marriage? But they talk about what? Different aspects of their marriage. Um, this part is fine. Communication isn't quite so good. This part we have to work on. And so you're talking about the subject. So the subject being the same, but you don't say the same thing over and over and over again. You broaden out. So what we're going to see here is in this prayer, there's guideposts to bring about a subject but then the spirit is going to go and expand it into a greater dialogue. Now, as we see here, he says again in verse 7, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens. And the heathens are like, if I just say it over and over and over again, like a mantra, that has to work. Now, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. So he talks about, you know, don't, it's almost like a stutter. It's almost as if they're, they're just meaningly empty words because you're just saying it to say it to say it. There are certain prayers that I don't know if you've, you know, um, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And we have those things and you can say them, you know, um, dear God, bless this food or whatever you might have for your, your meal. It's almost always the same. Bless this food and, you know, and... When you pray, it's important to realize that although you may have the same subject matter, and the key to the subject matter is first God, then me. That's the key to the subject matter. And let the dialogue roll. So we're seeing here not vain repetitions. And he says in verse 8, Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. He talks about, I know what you need. Even before you ask, I know what you need. Through this area of God, the very first thing that we need, whether you realize it or not, is we need Him to initiate. Why? First and foremost, we were all sinners. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And that God initiates. God says, come to me. Come to me. I'm here. Here I am. Let's have this conversation. And God is the one who came to Adam in the cool of the, the day. God is the one who went and met Abraham. And God is the one who's going to meet you too. And realize that God can't wait to meet with you. So you're going to the room and you're like, okay, I'm going to dial God. And God's like, I'm already on the phone. All you have to do is pick it up. I'm already there. You don't have to punch in the numbers. You don't have to do anything. I'm already there. The speakerphone's always active. He's, he's better than Lexa, you know. He's always there listening, always wanting to hear the dialogue. And so he says, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. I want to share with you one passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2. And it says this, do not be rash with your mouth and let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. It's interesting and we, we have songs about this. But he says, don't, don't be rash with your mouth. Don't you know, oh, I got to dialogue this and dialogue this. He says, or let your heart utter anything hastily. Ponder, think, 
move. God is in heaven and you are on earth. And we're going to see this here in just a second because when God asked Adam, where are you? Where are you? And it's a good question. We need to ask where we are too. But as we're doing this, realize he's up here, we're not. And then he's the one who has to come down and to meet with us. He's the one who initiates these things. So when we see here in verse 8, do not be like them for your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. He's God. You're not going to surprise him. You're not going to say, oh, just in case you didn't know God, you know, and, and, and I have to let you know because I need you to be this merciful. I need you to be this gracious. And like, do you actually think that you in your mind can perceive more grace than I can give? Do you think that you in your heart could desire more mercy than what I give? And we have a way in those subtle ways of elevating ourselves and making us sound good in our prayers. Rather than just be merciful to be a sinner. It's so key to when it comes to this. Well, in verse 9, he now begins to say in this manner, therefore pray. There's eight things that we want to look at in here. I know that, you know, we don't always like lists, but sometimes lists are not a bad thing. And there's eight things that he's going to be pointing out within this. The very first thing that we're going to see is he says, our Father in heaven. Our Father. I want you to understand he doesn't say my Father. Everything that he says here in this prayer is in the plural. It's about having a family. It's not about just me and God. It's about us and God. Why? Because we're his children. And, and although there are sometimes, you know, you've heard him say, oh, God just loves me. I'm his favorite, that kind of thing. But know this, he loves you and you're his favorite. He, all of us are his favorites. And here we see that it's our father. And so I want you to realize that here, the first thing that you want to realize is we're not alone in this. And not only am I praying for me, but I'm praying for my brothers and my sisters as well. It's our father. And so there's this family, and I think sometimes the enemy wants you to, to think that you're all alone. Have you ever prayed that where you think, I'm all alone, God, I need you, I'm all, it's just me. And we're almost like, like Elijah, where I alone and left, and oh my goodness, here I am. And God says, I got a lot more. What he's saying is this, our father, there's mine and my brothers and my sisters and, and the families and the churches and the studies, it's our father. And I realize I'm not alone. And I'll tell you what, so often the desperation of prayer comes when I think I'm all by myself. And what Jesus does, the very first word he uses is in the plural, our Father. Notice what he says in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Look at what he says in verse 12, and forgive us our debts. And verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see how it's all, it's not just about me. The prayer is uniting us in our hearts to God and realize I'm not alone. I have a family and this family has a father. This family has a head. And you have to understand that the big brother is not the, not the one who's in charge. The father's in charge. And it's so important to recognize that because it's not like, okay, well, well, you're the big brother in this group. No, I'm not. I'm just a brother in this group. God is the father. 
And so as we're looking to this area, we see our Father in heaven. We're not alone. We have a family. The first thing that we realize is there's this group and we all need to come to God and draw us to you. But as I'm praying, I'm not praying just for me, but I'm praying for others as well. And you have to understand that as he's realizing this, he's saying, in this manner, therefore pray. This communication, very much like that communication that God had with Adam, I think should be a daily aspect of prayer, should be a daily dialogue that you have with God. Not only do I believe it's a daily dialogue, but you might not like me saying this, I do believe that it's an AM dialogue, not a PM dialogue. So often we have a tendency to think, oh, it's that night I'm going to pray. It's time to settle things down and pray. Well, it's interesting that what he says in verse 11 is, give us this day our daily bread. He didn't say thank us for the daily bread. He goes on and he says um, in verse 13, do not lead us into temptation. Was it thank you for not leading me? See, see, this is the beginning of the day. As you have these conversations with God, and it's so important that you have this conversation and you realize, I'm not alone here. Lord, there, there's a family, there's people who love me, there's people who's praying for me, people who's interceding. And I love the fact that when I sit down for a study, one of the very first things I do is I thank him for the prayers, your guys' prayers. Thank you for the prayers. Thank you for the people that are praying to clear my mind and clear my heart and get me right with you so that I can open your word and look to what your heart is. And it's, it's our Father. But I believe that this is something that we daily need to look for, that one, we're a family, and two, he's the head of it. But then he says, our Father in heaven. And it's important to realize because all of a sudden that not only are we, we looking to the, the, the persons that are within the group, me and God and you and everybody, but then we look at our positions. First, it's the, the, the people. Well, all of us are the people. We're all the family of God. It's our Father. And then we say, here's the position. You're in heaven. And then he asks this question, where are you? <laughs> You're in heaven. And I have to realize, I'm not. Do you realize what that's going to do to the conversation? He's in heaven. I'm not in heaven. And it's so important to realize that here, he's there. I'm here. He's got everything in order. I don't. And I love how we're in Psalm 3, verse 3. He says, remember, he says, you're the lifter of my head. So what I'm seeing is this. When I say our Father in heaven, I get to do this. I get to lift my eyes. I get, I get to look to heaven. I get to see where my help comes from. The amazing thing is we were looking at that portion there in Luke chapter 8. But it declared this, how when, when the, that Pharisee went and he did all of his, uh, his, this is who I am, verse 13, the tax collector standing afar off didn't believe he could come near when not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what God wants us to know is this. Yes, you are a sinner. And in yourself, you have no right to raise your eyes. But he is the lifter of my head. Amen. He's the one who says, no, no, you can look at me. Come and look at me. 
it's interesting that when, when our children are little and our grandchildren are little, I have one granddaughter that, that is so, when she does something wrong, she gets so embarrassed. She can't look at you. She can't look at you. She, she just can't. And, and, and you have to say, I need you to look at me. And she can't. And, and, and she can, she's trying to hold it together. She's trying to hold it. And she looks up and then waterworks. It's just waterworks. But, but I need you to look. I need you to look at me. And I think it's so important that God is, is so often saying, you know, where are you? What are you doing? Look at me. And, and he's there in heaven. And we're here on earth. And so I love the fact our Father, our, the people that are there, that are in our lives, the people that are connected to us spiritually. And then we see the positions. God is in heaven and, and we're here on earth. And so the same way that God, Adam, where are you? Where are you at? And, and I have to realize, God, you're there. I'm not. I'm here. I'm here and the struggles are real. And, and when I'm there, it'll all be done. But here it's not. And so when I'm looking at God in heaven and I'm seeing like, Lord, you know what? You're there. You're in control. You see everything. Nothing's outside of your purview. When I'm coming to you, I'm not telling you something that you don't know. I'm not telling you something that you can't control. And as you're there in heaven, I can't outdo you with my petitions. Say, oh, could you do this? Oh, could you do that? It's like, do you really think that that's what I'm limited to? Remember now, Abraham went down to 10 and he stopped. Just stopped cold. Like, oh, that's as far as I can go. God, like, not as far as I can go. God took out Lot. He took out his wife. He took out his two daughters. And we know where his wife and his two daughters were. He took out Lot. Down to one. And I love the heart of this. And so we see here this beautiful portion where we see the people, we see the petitions. And then in verse 9, where here we see, let the person of God begin to overwhelm you. Where he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're just talking about, oh Lord, hallowed be your name. That, that term hallowed means sanctified, set apart. The word name is yes, your name, you know, Yahweh, Jehovah, but it's also your character. And I'm thinking, oh, your character is so good. You are so amazing. And you begin to worship God. And so what happens is this, that we come to the Lord and we focus on Him, and we focus on Him, and we focus on Him. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that in the Psalms what happens is this, that David begins the Psalms by saying, God, I'm in so much trouble. And then as he begins to say, God, would you see this? God, would you see this? God, would you see this? And all of a sudden, the psalm begins to change. And he's begins, oh, Lord, yeah, you know this. And oh, God, you got this under control. And by the end of the psalm, he's exalting God Almighty. saying, God, you are so good. You are so amazing. You have this all under control. I want to worship you. I want to exalt you. I want to praise you. And yet, what's that at the beginning of the psalm? And I think it's so important that when you're praying, and you're praying, of course, with the perspective of the people, and your, your perspective, okay, this is where your position is up here, mine's down here. But as you focus on God, stay there. Don't, don't move over to the next one. Remember, we talked about the rungs there when we went through the, the Beatitudes. Don't move to the next rung until you get this down. 
Don't, don't jump to say, oh, let, let me get my petitions in here. Forgive me of my sins. Stay right here. Because once you get to the point of exalting God to such a degree, elevating him, you're going to realize that you are bigger than any issue that I have. And all these issues almost become nothing. They just become nothing in light of who God is. There was a time prior to just coming out here to Milwaukee that we were at a, at a place where I left my job, went into the ministry, and we were at a place where we were not doing well. And I'm really praying, sincerely praying, God, do you want me to quit the ministry and go back and, and you know, get this so I can pay off these things that are breaking down and, and you know, I got to provide. And, and I was very close, very close to doing that. And my wife and I was one late afternoon, early evening. We just needed to go before the Lord and, and say, God, you got to provide for these things. And uniquely, it was, it was, sometimes we would just jump into our prayers and say, okay, God, you know what we need? Let's bring these things before the Lord. And that's why we went into our room, shut the door and began to pray. But God just put upon my heart just to thank him. And I was like, oh, Lord, you know, thank you. I, I know you're here. I know you're listening. And I went from a simple thanks, and then my wife took that, and she went into a deeper thanks. And then it led me to even a deeper thanks, and even a deeper thanks. And we just started just bouncing back and forth into this, just thanking God for who he was and how he was working and what he did. And we had this incredible, lengthy, lengthy time of prayer and by the time we got done, we didn't make one petition. There was not nothing we needed. There, there wasn't anything. We were, we were fine. God, you're there. You're in control. You have it all worked out. And I think that's what we need to do periodically is you just let the glory of God and the wonder of God and the exaltation of God and this person overwhelm you. And, and so by the time that you get done, you're just surrendering everything to God. You are so good and so great that all these things are nothing compared to you. That when you begin to exalt God, everything else becomes in its proper place. Mm. Now, what happens is before you exalt God, these things are huge because they're on your heart. They're the things that you think are driving you to God, but these are things that God put in your life to drive you to Him. You didn't initiate it. God did. He's put these things in your life so that you begin to look to Him. Because like, oh, I can't do it. Oh, but God can. Let's go to God. And he, as you go to him, you begin to exalt him and magnify him. All these things now become lesser and lesser as God becomes greater. And if you think, no, Lowell, you don't understand the problems I have in my life, there's not enough time to exalt God. Realize how quickly David realized his problems were nothing. If you go through most of the Psalms, you can read a Psalm in a little over a minute. Most psalms are less, but in the longer ones, a little over a minute, maybe two. And, and so you can go through the psalms, and David here, in a matter of just a couple of minutes, is exalting God and realizing, ah, I don't have any issues. Or <laughs> you got it all under control. This is why it's so important, hallowed be your name. That you look to the Lord and you're giving him glory. You just let the person of God and his goodness and his greatness just 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 put everything in his right perspective. He's good. He's in heaven. He's in control. And these things here are nothing. So 
The next thing that we see is after we're, we're seeing here, letting the very person, the nature, the character of God overwhelm you. Then he says this in verse 10. It's your purposes. It's not my purposes, it's your purposes. And so we see within this perspective, he says this in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to deal with this. You let your will be done. Let, let your kingdom come. Why do we do that? Why do we say, God, it's your purposes? Two passages I want to give you. Um, the, the first, I had to throw this in there because it just, as I was looking, I only was going to give you one. I was going to give you that one in Isaiah. But I want to read to you in, in Job chapter 38, the first three verses. Job here has been saying, oh, I want to talk to God. I want to talk to God. I can't wait to talk to God. Oh, God, I got so many things I got to tell you. Oh, my goodness, do I have some things to tell you. And in chapter 38, God comes in, okay, Job, talk to me. But what he does is this. The Lord answered Job out of the world and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now, now God begins to talk to Job. He says, now I'm going to ask you, as far as my perspective, kindergarten stuff of the physical universe. Now, can you just loosen the belt of Orion, just take a star, put it over here. Now, I'm asking you to create a star, just move it. Here's Job. Like, <laughs> he darkens. Darkens the counsel by words without knowledge. To be honest with you, that's my perspective of things. When I think God, I gotta tell you this. Like, okay, do you really? And do you really think you understand what you're doing and you're gonna say what you think you're gonna say? The other passage I want to give to you, Isaiah 55, and I want to read verses six through nine. It just simply declares this. Seek the Lord while it may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him to our God for he will abundantly pardon. My thoughts are not your thoughts nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Why do you think Jesus is actually saying, God, um, would your kingdom come and would your will be done? Because the very most that I can do while seeing through this glass darkly is count, give darkened counsel. God, I know what's going on. <laughs> He's like, you've never known what's going on. I could even tell you what's going on, and you won't know what's going on. You might have a little clue of what's going on in the physical, but you have no clue of what's going on in the spiritual. You don't even know how this is going to affect you tomorrow and the next day and the next day as you come seeking me. And so when we're looking at this, it's so important that when God begins to find his perspective... And you're like, oh, you're bigger than all these issues. You come to the place and say, I don't want to, I don't want to just throw something out. I don't want to be Peter. I don't want to have that, oh, it's good for us to be here. Don't, don't do the sandal and mouth thing. It's just so important. Let your words be few. 
He listen to him. Listen to his guidance. Exalt him with as many words as you need to. Let those words be, be magnified. But when it comes to telling God what he needs to do, it's so important. It didn't say, let my will be done in heaven as it is in earth. It's not what it says. But we pray, let your will be done on earth. But we're, what we, we, we pray is what? But I want, to do, I want you to do my will. What is my will? What do I know of my will? I don't have a clue what's going on. So often we are so much like Job. Why, oh God, I, when I talk to you, when I tell you about this, oh my goodness, are you going to be blown away? God's like, listen, before the foundation of the world, I knew everything that was going to happen. I'm in charge of everything. And I have a perfect path. My word is going to be a lamp onto that path, a light into the feet. Let me be the one to dictate it. And so I love how he does it. He almost like, okay, don't tell God what you think that he needs to know. Because he says, remember, remember verse 8? He says, therefore, don't be like them, for your father knows the things that you have needed before you ask. Doesn't mean that you can't ask, but don't tell him this is how it's done. Don't, don't think that you can out grace him or out mercy him like like you can really say oh if you do it this way oh they're going to be so amazed really is the, like god has limits that we have to impress him and say lord you go beyond that his ways are so far beyond our ways he's able to exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or even think that's who he is so i love the heart of it but it's all about his purpose. It's not mine anymore. It's his purpose. He knows what I have need of. But here it is. He says this. Looking at his provision. Give us this day, verse 11, our daily bread. As we're looking to this, and we, we see, God, it's, it's your provision. You are going to be the one to provide for us. Now, Keep in mind, there are some people, and there have been times in my life, and there's probably been times in your life where you've had to pray, God, give us this day our daily bread. We have no bread, and we need some bread. We have, we have one pot of soup with the vegetables that we chopped up from the fridge, and that's it. God, could you provide the daily bread? And so graciously, he does. There was actually, I have to say, there was one night we were at that exact spot. And we were, we were just thanking God for the, the, the soup that he had. And, and uh, um, there was a knock on the door during the prayer. During the prayer. And it's like, wow, Lord, this is a Mueller thing. You know? And so went and the door. And literally, there was a man who had two. I don't know if you've ever seen those 33 black garbage bag gallons. He had two of those bags of bread. So I told my wife, I said, put the soup back on the stove. And I went through our junk drawer and I got like 27 cents or 33 cents. I don't remember what a pound of margarine was back then. But I went to the store, I got a thing of butter and I, I brought it home and the soup was warm. And oh my goodness, we glutted ourselves. And we had so much food that we gave it to our neighbors the next day. But that's what God does. And, and I just think it's so important. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, what we're really seeing is this. Um, God, be my provider. Now, understand that, that most of us won't have to say, give us this day our daily bread. I'm sure that 
most of us can say, I can live for probably two days with just stuff that's in my cupboard, stuff that's in my fridge. I could do at least two days. Um, some of us, if you're a survivalist, you can do it for two years. But <laughs> you, you, know, you, you don't have to say, give me today the bread. I need it for today. What he's asking is this. He says, I, I want to be your provider. I want to be your security. See, and if you realize that what I have isn't my security, you are my security. So that, that, that's the mindset that he's giving. He's like, I want you to be my security. I want, I want you to be my provider. All the things that you've made me a steward over, that's not my security. You are my security. You be what I need. You feed me. You feast me. You do what you need me to do. You provide for me. And so we're seeing here with this, with this provision. The next thing that we see is this, is God's pardon, of course. And in verse 12, we see, and he says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so the, the whole key is, forgive me my debt. In other words, I want the fellowship restored with you. But here's the thing. I need my fellowship restored with others that are there. And, and it's one of those things where forgive us our debts as we forgive. Now, that's the kick. It's It's... If there's anything that you can hold against someone else, would you be willing to say that God could hold something against you? Because all sin is against God. And I think it's interesting that he says, I, I so desperately am grateful for your blood, Jesus, and your forgiveness. And as I have freely received your forgiveness, let me freely forgive. Overflow me and then let it overflow to others. This whole area of pardon and forgiveness. And so we realize that after we come to this point of exalting God and realizing, okay, what's your plan for me today? I'd rather have yours in mind. I don't want to darken counsel. What do you have? Because your ways are so beyond my ways. And would you do me a favor? Would you provide for it? Whatever you need today, you provide for that. And by the way, um, every morning I have to realize that I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness. There are some people who actually think that they can reach a place in life where they are sinless. Mm. They are sinless. Mm. And they have no pride when they say that at all, by the way. I just want you to know. They're just, <laughs> no. It's like, I have not sinned. Well, that's good. That's perfect for you. But, but apparently Jesus didn't know that when he taught <laughs> and and it, when we look to this, it's forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. There has to be this pardon. And what I love about it is this, that every morning when I come and I realize, God, your forgiveness is here again. Your forgiveness is here again. The blood has washed me again. It's washed me again. And I'm always drawing back to his incredible grace. Whenever I have to come and say, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, Lord, and I realize that I'm forgiven. Mm. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. This is the heart of God. This is what he does. And so it's so important to come and say, I'm restored with you every morning. You're saying, I'm forgiven and the, the fellowship is restored. No matter what I've done, in the morning, it's restored, and I have the ability now to walk in this new restoration all day. And what I want is I want everyone else to come back to me new and fresh, 
Now, I'm not going to hold it. Look at what you did to me yesterday. Look at what you said to me on Sunday. I'm not going to hold that against you. It's just gone. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ, it's for the world. It's for all sin. And I realize that's paid for. So as, as I'm so grateful for this fellowship to be restored, I want this fellowship on, on that horizontal plane to be restored like God did the vertical. And so let me also forgive others. And then he says this, and do not lead us into temptation. Um, and we see here, we see just God's protection. Watch over me as I go through this world because there are going to be temptations. There's going to be things that are going to draw my mind or draw my heart or something's going to come. And I need you in your grace to lead me. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I realize that what the, what's going to happen is there's a spiritual battle and the enemy's going to want to make me so I'm knocked off the lane. And if I can be knocked off the lane, then he can say, I can disqualify you for today. There's some Christians, he can say, well, I, you won't even come back to God tomorrow and ask for forgiveness. I can disqualify you for a week or months or six months until you come back on this lane and realize that that's what he wants. Now, the beautiful thing about God is, is if you're off the lane, just come back on the lane. That's all you have to do. Confess, repent, I'm there. Moment by moment, I'm there. But I think it's so important to realize that there is going to be battles that I'm going to face today, Lord. And there are going to be things that are going to try to vie for my attention, to vie for my heart. And, and so, you know, when, when it comes to those areas, when I have those dialogues with the Lord, I can go back and I can think, oh, yeah. Sometimes the Spirit says, remember, that's what vied for your heart just the other day. And this is what I showed you. Remember what I showed you? Remember what I showed you? So when that temptation came, remember how we overcame that? Remember the word that I gave you as you prayed? All these will be new conversations and, and, and God just opens it up so that we can communicate and we can have a day of walking together in the cool of the garden. That I don't have to go and hide myself. That I don't have to say, oh Lord, oh, I hear your voice, I'm out of here. <laughs> no, no, where are you? Well, what's, what's going on? What did you do? Where are you at? This is the heart of God. And so we see just pray for that protection and, and, and also be reminded of how he has protected you in the past. And then we see here, you close it with this permanence of God. And giving him for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Exalting him one more time. When all is said and done, when you realize, God, you know, you're going to walk with me. And you're like, wow, you are going to walk with me? You should be saying, you know, I'm going to make you like Job and put you on the, the, the ash heap and with, you know, boils and sores and, and wipe everything out because that's what you deserve. <laughs> you're going to bless me? You're going to move me? And, and God, you're so good. And we begin to see here that he says, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. And I realize, God, you're never going to change. You are never going to change. This is who you are. This is your nature. So keep in mind that as we look through these eight things, that, that any one of these is a chance to just jump off on a dialogue. Jump off on a dialogue. Jump off on a new remembering or old remembering. Say, oh, I remember you did this, Lord. You're so good. 
let it be this beautiful time of just talking to God and letting him talk to you. And then, of course, of course, he closes with verse 14 and 15. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. <laughs> now, I'm not going to dive into that. I almost thought about making this an entire message on itself. And it will be, but it'll be when we get further through Matthew. We're going to deal a whole aspect of forgiveness, as Peter said. How often should I forgive? So with that, just as a note when it comes to prayer, when, when God begins to say, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. In other words, if you're allowing men access into your life, which comes through forgiveness, then God allows you access into his life because of forgiveness. It all comes through this contrite heart. Now, usually what happens is this lack of forgiveness means that I believe either this person is in contrite or I believe that, that he needs to be contrite to me. It doesn't have to be contrite to me. It has to be contrite to God. I just need to forgive. I just need to go and say, Lord, um, in the same way that you forgave me, while I was still in sin, not even asking for it, before the foundation of the world, you already set the plan in, in, in motion for Jesus Christ to die for me and forgive me. But then he says this, um, if you forgive men, verse 14, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. And so and it's one of these things that when I'm bitter, I'm going to hold someone's wrong to them. It's like, oh, no, no, I'm still bitter. You still did this. I'm not going to forgive you. The author of Hebrews talks about in chapter 12, beware lest this root of bitterness come and, and through it you become defiled. And I think what happens is this, is that when I'm bitter, I always remember the negative details and negative details and negative details and negative details. And so often that even happens in marriages when the, the husband and the wife get bitter towards each other, only remembering the negative. And what, what God wants us to do, and I remember the, the negative and how it affected me and how I felt and... And, and I want my desires. I want you to think better of me and do this to me and do this to me. And the bottom line is, God, you do these things to me. I don't need men to do that. I don't need the praises of men. I don't need them because I have you. I have family. I have all kinds of people who are in the same place that, that they realize that we can't hold the wrongs of others against them. I need to be free of that. And I need to put their wrongs before the cross and realize, Jesus, you deal with it. I want to reach out in love. And I can do that through your spirit. I can do that because I've been forgiven. I can do that if it's one thing. If it's your will that it be done. And that's why we're looking to say, because I, if I go and say, God, you don't want me to forgive that person. Uh, be careful. You might be darkening counsel. <laughs> you, know? you don't know what he wants. It's so important. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth. Let me become this vessel for what it is that you want to take care of. And, and then I need to go through these steps. I can't jump steps, but I do need to go through the steps. And one of the things that's going to free me to the day is if, I don't know if you've ever had a person at work that just was constantly on your case or constantly just a thorn in your side. What happens is this, if you start the day already having forgiven them, oh my goodness, what a day you're going to have. And so you're like, oh, 
This is going to be a great day. I, this person is already forgiven. He's already free. He's, and, and if he comes and does something again, I don't have to worry about it. Why? Because tomorrow it's going to be forgiven again. So with this, I think it's so important to, to realize it's just where we are with these whole things. Let it be going to God and dialoguing. And then realizing that these steps are just beautiful steps to kind of pray through and think through. And, and if you want, just, you know, initially kind of put something down there where you can kind of say, oh, I can check that off. You know, God, I'm just going to focus on you. I'm just focusing on your greatness. I'm going to focus on the family. That You've got all these eight points. And, and I'll be honest, if, if there are some days you can buzz through these in like three minutes, you can. And, and, and you, 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 you have a fulfilling prayer time. And other times you're just going to be hanging out and time is just going to just, it's going to just be gone and you're going to be there for an hour, hour plus, and you don't even realize it because you're there. Um, but it is about this. Don't let it be just the words you speak. Let it be a dialogue that comes from the heart. And when your father who sees you in secret, he's going to reward you. He's going to bless your day. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for just your grace and your goodness, who you are and how you work. And Lord, we do ask that through this passage that you would continue to illuminate us. This is a discipline of righteousness. This is something that is not if you pray, but when you pray. And we see here that, God, you met with Adam daily. And this is, this is the daily prayer. I do believe it. It's a morning prayer. And Father, draw us to this end. Draw us to take the time to pray to you, to commune with you, to dialogue with you, and to allow your spirit time to speak back to us, your will, through your word and through just the leading of your spirit. Draw us to this. Teach us this through your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.